From Public Radio International, this is America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. Carpet bombs, nuclear weapons, gas chambers, tools developed in the 20th century to kill as many people as possible in wartime. But another tool was also developed then, one that may be more effective in the long run, nonviolent resistance. Whether it was the hunger strikes led by Gandhi in India's independence movement in the first half of the century. Aimed at the British, Gandhi's strike was also a protest caused by the caste system under which 60 million untouchables are outlawed by their fellow Hindus. Or the sit-ins of the civil rights movement in the 1960s. You go to a counter. You do not request that the person sitting next to you get up and leave. You cause no violence. You have no angry words. Or the striking of Polish dock workers and the rise of the Solidarity Movement in the 1980s. The only effective way was for us to organize around bread and butter issues and use these concerns to gain our freedom. We set about using truth to conquer untruth. All of these techniques fall under the definition of nonviolent resistance, says Hardy Merriman, president of the International Center on Nonviolent Conflict. Nonviolent resistance, or another term that we use as civil resistance, is a way for ordinary people to struggle for their rights using a wide variety of nonviolent tactics, such as strikes, boycotts, civil disobedience, mass protests, and a range of other forms of non-cooperation. What's important to note, he says, is that these techniques are effective. The data shows nonviolent civil resistance movements over the 20th century that are challenging governments, even brutal governments, have had a 53% success rate. And violent insurgencies trying to overthrow governments have had a 26% success rate. Merriman says most people who practice civil resistance don't do so because they're pacifists or for necessarily moral reasons. They do it because it's most likely to lead to victory. They simply think it will be the most effective way, based on the options that they have, to achieve their ends. In societies where the conventional methods of making change don't work, elections and the legal system are fraudulent or inaccessible, and where violence is seen as you know, very unlikely to yield any results, People tend to choose this form of struggle, and they often come to it from a pragmatic perspective, though certainly not all. And as these movements have become more effective, repressive regimes have adapted, using increasingly sophisticated tools to crack down on peaceful protesters. What we've seen recently, actually, is a declining success rate, which is concerning. The data that I've looked at shows that after sort of a high watermark of about 65 to 70 percent two decades ago, you're looking now at an effectiveness rate of movements of about 35 percent. And I would attribute this to two things. Um, the first is that we're seeing a lot more cases of civil resistance around the world than we have in recent years. So there seems to be a diffusion effect. People are recognizing that this form of struggle is powerful, that it can achieve real success even against entrenched adversaries. But there's another factor, too, which is governments have adapted and become increasingly uh, effective and expanded their tactical repertoire in trying to defeat these movements. And that is a reality that we've seen growing over the last 15 years. And I think movements really need to figure out how to respond. For example, the Arab Spring of 2011 has had mixed results. And before that, Iran's Green Movement in 2009 was repressed by the government. The dream was dashed on the wall of repression. 
A few hours later, the besieges, the regime's militia, fired on the crowd, killing and wounding people. The first martyrs of the new Iranian revolution. The cycle of violence was underway, a cycle which persists today. And Merriman says this is how governments are adapting to nonviolent resistance. Governments now are passing copycat legislation to try to limit civil society within their countries. They are increasingly criminalizing dissent. There's a case in Angola of some activists who simply possessed a book called From Dictatorship to Democracy by Dr. Gene Sharp, who's written in the field of nonviolent action for years. They were sentenced to multiple years. I think one got as many as eight years for simple possession of that book. Governments are sharing technology about how to track activists better and to infiltrate them. And then, you know, one other example would be governments even making emergency loans to each other or providing each other with military support when they're severely challenged by a movement that's disrupting them. And I think part of what this shows is that actually governments are really afraid of nonviolent civil resistance. Nonviolent challenges are scary to governments, and governments do their best to try to keep that reality hidden uh, by criminalizing this knowledge, by prosecuting activists, and by pretending that they're invulnerable, which, of course, we know they're not. One example of a long struggle against an oppressive leader is in Zimbabwe. Since 2002, an organization called Women of Zimbabwe Arise, or WOZA, has been pressing the government of Robert Mugabe to expand their social and economic freedoms. Ironically, it was Mugabe himself who helped free the country from British colonial rule in 1980. Yet he did it through 15 years of bloody conflict. WOZA co-founder Jenny Williams says that's at the root of today's problems. We decided that we wanted to choose a nonviolent way in which we can work in Zimbabwe because there was a liberation war where they used weapons and killed people. And we said that if they used violence and the result is so poor, why don't we find a way to do our work nonviolently as women together And maybe if we try to hold our leaders accountable and we try to talk and raise issues in a nonviolent way, maybe there'll be a better chance for us to develop Zimbabwe. Woza has led lots of street protests. Williams says she started the movement out of desperation over what had become of her country. At one time, Zimbabwe was known as the breadbasket of Africa. These days, the land has been depleted of its resources and the economy is in shambles. Additionally, the government has challenged free assembly. And according to Amnesty International, people have little access to basic health and education. And so we said, no, as women in the country, we have to step into the street and show Zimbabweans a nonviolent way that they can act and hold the government accountable. We said we are tired of just staying in our homes and crying. Woza has become known for organizing an annual countrywide Valentine's Day protest. That's the time we want to tell Zimbabweans that they must choose nonviolence, choose love over hate. And we normally march handing out red roses, which for us is a symbol of dignity. And we have had up to four to 5,000 people in those demonstrations on Valentine's Days. 
Williams has been a headache for the government for the past few years. She says she's been arrested 67 times in her career as an activist, one time spending six weeks in jail. She says she gets constant police visits and has problems reentering the country whenever she travels abroad. She's marked as a wanted criminal on her passport. Still, she considers herself lucky. At a recent demonstration in Harare, activists were demanding justice for Itai Zamara, a protester they believed was abducted by the Zimbabwe government and who hasn't been seen in more than a year. We are doing this in solidarity with the families that are missing their beloved ones. And we are saying the Zamara family, we will be with you. Williams says protests like this one underscore one of Woza's founding principles, which is to be anti-hierarchical so that everyone in the group feels empowered. We wanted to be able to take an ordinary person and equip them with all the different forms of nonviolent protest, something like 220 versions of nonviolent protest. We wanted them to also be equipped with how they can sit and meet and debate and interrogate what the problem areas are so that if they identify a problem and they want to go and see their local councillor, they will go with an aura of confidence that they know what their issues are and that even if they are not educated at the level of the councillor, they will be able to tell the councillor, this is what we want you to attend to and this is how you should be held accountable by us because we voted for you. Woza's efforts have received international attention. In 2009, President Obama presented the organization with the prestigious Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights Award. Despite such a claim, Williams still struggles to find enough money. Zimbabwe has a staggering unemployment rate, around 80 percent, according to Amnesty International. This year, a lack of resources forced Woza to cancel its Valentine's Day protest. Still, Williams remains undeterred. When you have the amount of successes that you have, there's no need for you to change your strategy. And I think for us as Woza, for members in the organization, we are sufficiently winning and gaining ground and growing as a movement. And so nobody questions that strategy. It is concrete. It is delivering results and we are keeping on doing it. And for us, we are then even more and more committed every day when we see that nonviolence is an option that will bring us to a better place in Zimbabwe. That's Jenny Williams, co-founder of the group Women of Zimbabwe Arise. Coming up, we look at some of the roots of nonviolent resistance in America and see how Gandhi's legacy is being practiced in India today. Every time someone sees a zero rupee note, it reminds them that they have to be a more honest individual, honest being, and never to give a bribe. You're listening to Civil Resistance, the power of the people on America abroad. Let us know your thoughts about this program. Tweet us at America underscore abroad. From Public Radio International, you're listening to America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. 
All this hour, we're exploring how and when nonviolent techniques can create lasting political and social change. As we'll see a little later, that approach was codified by Gandhi when he led India's struggle against British rule. But the techniques he used are actually centuries old. In fact, nonviolent resistance played a major role in the founding of our own country, says Walter Conser, a professor of history at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. During the colonial era in American history, between roughly 1765 and 1775, there were three major campaigns of nonviolent resistance, and the result of those campaigns was, uh, I would argue at least, the achievement of de facto political independence in the British colonies in North America before Lexington Concord. Lexington and Concord, the first shots fired in the Revolutionary War. Concer says before war broke out, though, nonviolent resistance against the British was pretty effective. For example, uh, non-importation campaigns where people would boycott British goods and thereby put economic pressure on British merchants who would put pressure then on British politicians. Or in addition to non-importation, there was non-consumption where uh, Americans would buy American-made goods. Uh, If there were British goods available, they would purposely not buy them. Finally, there was non-exportation where Americans decided to send no raw materials from America to England and thereby continuing to put uh, pressure through methods of protest and persuasion on British officials. Beyond that, what's most interesting is the development of parallel American institutions, especially institutions of government, through groups like the Stamp Act Congress or the Committees of Correspondence, or especially the First Continental Congress. Even though some of our early leaders were Quakers, a religion known for its pacifism, Concer says that it wasn't theology or morality that drove these movements. They knew that to take up the gun was simply suicidal. And so they looked at other nonviolent forms of resistance. But after the first revolutionary shots were fired, a wave of taking up arms swept through the country. There was little appetite to continue with a nonviolent movement. And the Second Continental Congress in May 1775 authorizes the Continental Army uh, and George Washington as the commander-in-chief, effectively dropping nonviolent strategies and taking up military campaigns as well. Walter Conser says abandoning civil resistance had long-term consequences. Men, women, even children uh, were involved in supporting these campaigns of non-consumption, non-importation, non-exportation. When you move to a military strategy, you effectively narrow that to men, basically. And not old men, but it have to be young men who are in good shape. That represented a restriction on participation. And I think many of those restrictions on participation continued into the political arena of the formation of the Constitution in the 1780s and 90s. Concer says nonviolent techniques were later used in the 18th and 19th centuries. You can find it in some of the resistance from slaves, the formation of labor unions, and acts of non-cooperation by Native Americans who were being pushed off their land. But it's not until the 20th century that civil resistance became codified in a way we know it today. And the person who did that was Mahatma Gandhi. Virtually all of the language, the terms that we use to talk about civil resistance in English were coined by Gandhi. 
That's Mary King, a political scientist and author of Freedom Song, A Personal Story of the 1960s Civil Rights Movement. It's an account of her years as spokeswoman for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Mary King says there was a direct link between what happened in India and what happened later in the American Civil Rights Movement. Many, many people don't realize that there was a steady stream of black American leaders traveling from 1919 to 1955 to India to visit the sites of struggle, to meet with people who were participating, and in many instances to sit down with Gandhi himself. He first learned about nonviolent strategies when he was a young lawyer living in South Africa. King says he wanted to improve the lives of Indians working there as merchants and haulers who were suffering under poor conditions. He began reading newspapers. In particular, he was watching the 1905 Russian Revolution, which was started by women over the price of bread. And he realized, and he wrote for the Indians in South Africa, that there is something here that we Indians can learn from because not even the Tsar can order people to work. Gandhi began to study the techniques of resistance. He started reading Indian newspapers. He started reading African newspapers elsewhere. He studied boycotts in China and in the United States. Boycotts have been around for centuries before there was a name for them. He's reading about that. He's reading about so many different techniques. He eventually begins to write systematically. And his writings would fill a hundred volumes. When he returned to India in 1915, he spent a year traveling to reacquaint himself. And then he began to organize particular campaigns and particular actions. But the knowledge that he based it on was international. Many, many, many people don't realize the bringing in of examples and lessons from elsewhere is always a very important preparatory step to a nonviolent campaign emerging. In his famous Salt March of 1930, Gandhi, along with 78 of his followers, made a 240-mile journey to the sea to protest a British tax on salt. Gandhi explained his mission. He would not return to the ashram until the Salt Act was repealed and Swaraj won. By the end, tens of thousands of fellow Indians were following him. As the procession marched through village after village, the people followed the fortunes of this marching column from day to day, and the temperature of the country went up. When Gandhi reached the coastal waters in the village of Dandi, he committed a simple act of disobedience by collecting seawater and boiling it and then harvesting the remaining salt. Never was the wave of patriotism so powerful in the hearts of Indians as it was on this great occasion. In the ensuing months, millions joined in this national act of defiance by making salt or buying illegal salt. It would take more than 17 years for Gandhi's struggle for independence from colonial rule to be realized. Mary King says during that time, he used every means of communication possible to spread his message, something she could relate to. Gandhi actually began writing in periodicals He would have at least three periodicals going at any given time. He also used telegrams. And you can do that when you get off a train, you can go and send a telegram. Gandhi would be dictating telegrams the entire trip until they put into a station. Then the secretary would get off the train and go and send all of these telegrams. Still, that was not enough. 
telephone was his other tool. He had a silent financial partner, a man named Jamnalal Bajaj, who paid for all of his telephone calls and all of his transportation. What we need to understand is that every nonviolent movement will seize on the most advanced means of communications available to them at that time. In the Civil Rights Movement, for example, we had offset printing presses and mimeograph machines, which were horrible to work on. You had to type a stencil and you had to turn the drum of a machine thousands of times and your hands would stink of the ink for a week. But it allowed us to have a kind of mass publication. Today, we have the same fundamental issues that we had in the civil rights movement and that Gandhi had earlier in India. The question of how we're going to fight, how we're going to recruit, how we're going to develop slogans that convey in two or three words the urgency and the centrality of this issue. Those issues remain constant. One campaign that's making a difference is taking place right now in India. Taking a page from Gandhi, nonviolent activists from a group called Fifth Pillar have found a novel way to stand up to corruption. Reporter Antoine Guinard has the story. Lakshmi Gunashekar is only 21 years old, but is already highly experienced in tackling corruption. So what I do is sometimes when I go to the office, uh, if the official says, please come back later, like I'm not ready to move out of this place until you get this done for me. I pull a chair and sit down in front of the person. It makes them very nervous and jittery. She has been running operations for three years at Fifth Pillar, an organization based in the city of Chennai in the southern tip of India. The uh, most important piece of advice we give to any individual when they come to us is not to act violently or be rude or raise your voice in front of an official. Give the respect that he deserves as another individual. At the same time, be firm about what you want and not to leave the building until you get your job done. So that is something that we've taken from the uh, non-corporation movement from Gandhi. This NGO, whose name invokes the power of the people in a democracy, was founded in 2007 by Vijay Anand, an Indian engineer working in the US, who decided to do something about the widespread corruption gripping his home country. Today still, the organization has only two small offices in the southern Indian state of Tamil Nadu and just a handful of full-time members. But it has made a name for itself and a mark on the country by mobilizing thousands of people with two forms of action, right to information requests, and the use of something called the zero rupee note. The note is a blatantly false oversized purple bill complete with Gandhi's portrait and hand it to any official who asks for a bribe. Every time someone sees a zero rupee note, it reminds them that they have to be a more uh, honest individual, honest being, and never to give a bribe. It has that effect on a person when they see the zero rupee note. Omesh Natarajan has witnessed the power of the zero rupee note. This retired bus conductor from the southern part of Tamil Nadu reached out to Fifth Pillar over a land dispute. The organization assisted him in getting his land title, cutting through red tape to prove he was the rightful owner. Afterwards, Natarajan decided to pay it forward by volunteering for Fifth Pillar on a regular basis, distributing zero rupee notes to people in his district and giving talks in schools. The zero rupee note is a very good weapon. It instills fear in corrupt officials and it forces them to be ashamed of what they are doing. There was a 70-year-old lady who was trying to get admission for her kids in an engineering college. She needed a land title for her application and she got it as soon as she gave the note to the officials. 
I've issued around 5,000 notes in my district and used it in several departments. A simple yet effective tool, the Zero Rupee Note has grabbed the attention of many Indians as well as the attention of the international media. The note communicates that not only will a person not pay a bribe, but also that they are not alone. They are part of a movement of people who support them in ending corruption. Fifth Pillar estimates that 2.5 million notes have been distributed across the country in the last nine years. While the overall impact is difficult to quantify, Lakshmi Gunashekar and the volunteers that work with her have countless first-hand anecdotes of its success. Since the uh, day we started distributing the Zidoruka notes, we've gotten callbacks from people saying, I used it today and I got my job done uh, without the bribe. We've also not heard back from a lot of people. And sometimes people know something like this exists and people approach us when they have a need. One such person is Paneer Karapusami, a disabled man who runs a small telephone booth a few miles down the road from Fifth Pillar's headquarters. He recently approached Fifth Pillar a year after being handed a zero rupee note during a street campaign by the organization. He knew they had a wide range of expertise in confronting authority. Gunashekar hops on her motorcycle to pay him a visit and help address his problem. She brings along a young volunteer named Surya Ponukalai. The grievance he's, uh, he called us with is uh, there's water entering his house because the roads have not been scrapped before they were late. So what he wants the government to do is scrap the road and relay it, also make way for the water to go behind in the canal uh, and not in his house. Uh, Surya is the RTI coordinator here, she's going to help him file an RTI. In India, RTI stands for Right to Information and is a new and powerful tool for citizens to obtain crucial information from public bodies within 30 days and thereby pressure the authorities to conform to the law. Nikhil Day is part of the handful of activists who successfully fought for the drafting of the RTI Act, a landmark bill which finally came into law in 2005. To me, why RTI is so powerful as a tool and as a movement is because it is not dependent on any organization. It's gone well beyond that. It's people who are frustrated, angry, trying to do something. And that's why, again, the RTI is, is really a fundamental change because it forced those in power to answer the most ordinary person. So it shifted power. In India, this new crusade against corruption has been likened by some to a second freedom struggle. It has become a hot topic and the movement saw massive protests in several cities in 2011. It even spawned a new political party which won a landslide victory in the Delhi regional elections last year. But not everyone is convinced that things are really improving. Isha Kandilwal is a young lawyer who fights for the rights of rural Indians. For her, anti-corruption actions like the Zero Rupee campaign are being blown out of proportion. Of course, it affects general public at large, but that is not the biggest issue in our country right now or ever for that matter. And it can't be solved just by stopping bribery or something. Back in Chennai, Fifth Pillar's small office is struggling to match the growth of the Zero Rupee note and RTI campaigns by growing itself as an organization. Still subsidized by its inspirational founder, it is now looking for a more sustainable way forward by broadening its partnerships and donor base. For now, its director, Gunashekar, has to rely on just a few helpful hands to man the organization's corruption hotline, conduct RTI training sessions, and give freedom from corruption lectures at schools and universities. So it's a regular saying that goes, right? It's better to teach someone to fish than uh, giving them fish to eat. Now we'd like to build a system on how to teach people to fish. Despite its limitations, Fifth Pillar tries to keep the flame of Gandhi's legacy alive. 
like the iconic leader of the Indian freedom struggle with the filing of RTIs, as well as more media-friendly shock tactics in the form of the zero rupee note, which also bear tangible results. For human rights activist Nikhil Day, organizations like this one, no matter how small, continue to play a role in the larger movement for social change. I think in that sense, people fighting corruption and the strength of an anti-corruption movement is growing. And where organizations like Fifth Pillar have a role to play is to try and connect with and tie up some of these people to give them the much needed little additional support they need. You have to innovate because if you really want to, to use what Gandhi did, it was at one time in one way. You have to do something else. For America Abroad, I'm Antoine Guinard. Resisting corruption and injustice is a challenge anywhere, but in places where there is little regard for the rule of law, it can be deadly. When the stakes are so high, is it possible or even wise to wage nonviolent resistance? That's a question I asked Hardy Merriman. He is the president of the International Center on Nonviolent Conflict. You have written that if people don't obey, rulers can't rule. Correct. But Rulers can use lethal force on those not obeying. So isn't that an effective way to win against nonviolent protesters? Yeah, it can be. However, uh, the academic research shows us that violent repression against a nonviolent movement is not necessarily as decisive or determinative as conventional wisdom tells us. And there are a few reasons for this. Um, the first is that a movement can engage in a repertoire of actions that don't make it easy to violently repress. For example, mass demonstrations can be encircled and police can systematically begin arresting people or even use violence against them. But if people choose to boycott, simply choose to not buy, as they did, again, to draw from the civil rights movement in the Montgomery bus boycott, it's much more difficult to know who to violently repress. But another factor is that repression itself can backfire, and violence used against demonstrators is intended to intimidate and try to deter other demonstrators, but it can have the exact opposite impact for a government, and governments may learn from that as well. And the last point I'd make is that sometimes the soldiers or police who are told to do the repression actually stop listening. They defect. They refuse to do the bidding of an elite that's been corrupted and that is using them for their own purposes. It's important to keep in mind that the people who are giving the orders for violent repression are rarely the people who actually have to carry it out on a day-by-day -day basis. And what we've seen in movements against dictatorships is that actually members of the security services simply begin to defect, either subtly or more overtly. What do you say to a movement that is facing a very violent opponent who will just, you know, mow down demonstrators as the first response? How do you maintain strong and how do you keep waging your battle. If I was speaking with activists from a highly repressive government, I would first the first thing I would do is I would ask them a lot of questions about their local context. Try to figure out what the issues are, the grievances of people that are most outrageous, most galling to people, most difficult because people will only organize and mobilize if they feel that a movement represents them. The next question would then be, well, where to push? If you want to push on those grievances, what is the most effective way to push? What's the most effective framing and communication? But the other piece of it, again, is choosing tactics that are difficult to repress, uh, that don't necessarily create an open target. And thinking over the long term, you know, movements, these are processes that can take months or years. And understanding that 
if a goal isn't achieved in three months or six months, it may be a three to five or six or 10 year process to get there. What's interesting though, is that if we look at the data, on average, it's actually nonviolent civil resistance campaigns that are much shorter than violent civil resistance campaigns. So as a matter of months or years, the prospects of victory with nonviolent methods are actually quicker. That's Hardy Merriman, president of the International Center on Nonviolent Conflict. Coming up, how some of those strategies we just discussed played out during the civil rights movement. The nonviolent methodology calls for systematic examination of your situation. We look back with the Reverend James Lawson. If you have a story of civil resistance or want to share your thoughts on some of the stories we've told so far, find us on Facebook at America Abroad Media. You're listening to Civil Resistance, The Power of the People on America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. On today's program, we're looking at nonviolent movements from a variety of angles. For the next part of our story, we're turning to one of the most distinguished trainers of the civil rights movement, the Reverend James Lawson. During the 1960s, he traveled from town to town, offering workshops to prepare activists. In almost all these cases, I did uh, role-playing to help put people into scenes where they were threatened or where they were actually slapped or attacked and then try to help them think through what it meant to be in charge of their lives and to not respond insults for an insult. We human beings have great capacity not to let it all hang out as television and films try to teach us to do because it's dramatic. Mm But also, it so, seems automatic, too, to respond but it's not with anger to anger. No, it's not automatic. Because that's not how our mothers responded to us as babies or as children. Most of our mothers respond to us with care and patience, civility. <laughs> and that's true all around the world. What is a lesson you think that is applicable to now that you learned and practiced back then? Well, within days after I moved to Nashville, I was in Little Rock, Arkansas, sitting in the home of Daisy Bates' living room with the nine Little Rock black students who were desegregating Central High. And so what we did there in that first meeting was to let them tell me the kinds of physical, verbal abuse they were taking. They had already been instructed by their parents and by the NAACP, you can't do insult for insult because then the desegregation experience will end automatically. They'll expel you, not the white students who harass you. So they had already been told that. That's part of the burden of trying to create change. In that case, the workshop was a combination of counseling, pastoral care, and teaching. I had to do a lot of that because there were crises all over the southeastern part where I was asked to intervene. The second major wave of teaching was where, after doing that for about nine months of traveling around the south, I decided I had to probably help to organize a second nonviolent campaign 
in conjunction with what the Montgomery bus boycott did to show that you could do it from the grassroots and you could do it again and again. So in concert with lay and clergy people in Nashville, we sat down and decided to examine the plight of the Negro in Nashville, A to Z. For six months, we did that once a week. So we decided we will desegregate downtown Nashville. We began to recruit students. We decided to launch workshops on nonviolent struggle in preparation and to prepare our leadership and others. We ran those for four or five months every week, once, once a week. That was a deliberate part of the strategy that I proposed because we're civilians who have families, jobs, <laughs> we can't give six days a week <laughs> to, to doing social action. So it needs to be strategically thought about and planned. And so that's one of the reasons we did it only once a week. So what do you think we can learn now when we consider protesting or you know, demonstrating against something we think is unjust? What can we learn from what you did? The nonviolent methodology calls for systematic examination of your situation and trying to decide how you move from A to Z in the issues that you're facing and how you create a plan to make it happen. You have to do it in a thoughtful fashion that allows you to exploit the people who are committed to it. And even after you hit the public stage of action, you have to plan such action in such a fashion that it can escalate with more people seeing what you're doing and wanting to join it. So you can't have actions every day. <laughs> you, you know, because you don't have any professional people you're paying to do this work. Can't be done. So it's, you have to be in it for the long haul, is what you're yes, saying. Yes, that's right. You have, and you have to do it in a fashion so that your people, your community, can do the work and do the work in such a fashion that they increase their own sense of confidence that they are doing the work. That's James Morris Lawson, Jr. Thank you very much. You're welcome. On the program today, we're exploring various strategies on how people can fight back using civil resistance, often in places where things may feel hopeless. That's certainly the situation in this next story. It takes place in a remote village in northwest Colombia called the San Jose de Apartado Peace Community. And for close to two decades, this tiny little village has tried to be an oasis from the devastating violence of Colombia's civil war. Alexandra Hall recently traveled there, and she has this report. At the end of a long dirt road in the Colombian jungle, a group of children marches forward holding signs and homemade banners. Their signs show the faces of some of the hundreds of people who have been killed here over the years. A little boy yells to the rest of the marchers to slow down. They're members of the San Jose de Apartado Peace Community, a group of campesinos or poor farmers from the Colombian jungle who declared their land neutral territory in the midst of the country's long-running civil war. Eventually, the crowd comes to a stop 
and the kids sing the community anthem. The lyrics say, let's go campesinos. Keeping the peace community strong is the only way to reconciliation. One of the community's leaders is Jesus Emilio, an unassuming farmer who's thin as a rail, but solid and strong. Today he's wearing a plain white undershirt and jeans. A machete hangs in a sheath over his left shoulder. Today we're commemorating 19 years of civil resistance. The campesinos have resisted the injustices of weapons for so many years here in the zona of Urabá, one of the most violent zones in the country. This is a kind of peaceful protest that we do so the world knows about all of the injustices that are still being committed after so many years of persecution of the campesino. In the 60s, a group of Colombian rebels known as the FARC started fighting the government in the name of communism and the rights of the poor. The Colombian government fought back and enlisted the help of the United States and right-wing paramilitary troops. It's been particularly rough for this rural community, where violence has forced thousands to abandon their land. The ones who stayed and stood up to the violence have paid dearly for it. Right now, there's about 700 of us. Before, there were 1,300. Because with so many deaths, there are less of us. And in the end, families or people that can't handle any more violence, they go somewhere else. Despite the losses, many villagers say it was far worse before they banded together. 20 years ago, civilians in this region were being killed indiscriminately as each side fought for control of the territory. At the time, it was common for guerrillas or state fighters to ask people for information or for food. If campesinos were seen talking with one side, they were often accused of helping them by the other. In the end, campesinos were caught in the middle, and many felt there was little they could do to defend themselves. There were people who felt obligated to pick up weapons because they said the state won't respect us, the state will not respect the campesino, and so we have to defend ourselves. But Jesus Emilio and other campesinos did something different. They decided to stop cooperating in any way with the armed groups, no matter what. They wrote and signed a document calling their land a neutral zone. They also laid out rules that anyone who wanted to join their community had to follow. And they chose an internal council of leaders. But the plan provoked the armed groups, and the response was brutal. Within months, several members of the internal council had been murdered. Apartado means isolated or separated from the rest in Spanish. And it's an appropriate name for this place. Today, Colombia's largest guerrilla group, the FARC, has dispersed, in part because of ongoing peace talks with the government. But people still call this area hot, referring to the presence of paramilitaries. Inside these gates, and a little to the left, lies the home of Brigida González, She's an artist and another founding member of the peace community. Standing in her living room, her walls are covered with illustrations and photographs. She unrolls large scrolls of paper to show me her paintings. Each one depicts a different massacre in the community. In this one, she says, soldiers killed and cut up three children, a six-year-old and a toddler. An 11-year-old was decapitated with a machete. 
Most of the killings, she says, were carried out by paramilitaries hired by the Colombian government to put down rebels. Brigida's art isn't just a way for her to grieve. It's also a tool that protects the village. When an outsider looks at a painting, they understand in graphic detail what has happened here. Jesus Emilio and other leaders are also often invited to speak in Europe and the U.S. to talk about the peace community. All of this has attracted not only international visibility, but also the presence of foreign aid workers, some who came to visit and never left. As night falls in the community, families eat dinner together in their homes, but one house's screen door never closes. Surrounded by an orange-painted fence, it reads Palomas de Paz, or Doves of Peace. Operazione Colomba is a peace group from Italy that has officially accompanied San Jose de Apartado for seven years. Silvia de Munari has been here for nearly three. The idea of international accompaniment is that a person who has a different passport besides a Colombian passport can be an external eye that watches over the members of the community. Leaders of San Jose de Apartado often receive death threats, so when they go into town or work in the mountains, they bring a peace worker like Silvia with them. It's kind of like having an unarmed bodyguard around. The idea is that an attack is less likely to happen if there's a witness with connections to the outside world. They really increase the costs for perpetrators to attack them, the fact that they are nonviolent. Researchers of nonviolent resistance like Colombian political scientist Juan Masulo say not using weapons is one of the community's greatest strengths. And this support has been critical for armed groups to respect what they do. Thinking of a bunch of civilians defending themselves against heavily armed groups in the middle of a civil war is something that for most of the people is unthinkable. They serve as an example in the sense of telling the world, look, this can be done. Recently, the FARC and Colombia's government have made more progress toward reaching a peace accord than ever before. It's a touchy subject here in San Jose de Apartado, where farmers have seen agreements signed in the past and little has changed on the ground. At the same time, they're trying to motivate future generations to keep the community alive. Because, they say, without the land, the campesino has nothing. For me, violence isn't an option. Sometimes you might feel afraid, right? But in the midst of so much injustice, there are more reasons to keep going. For America Abroad, I'm Alex Hall. So as we've been hearing this hour, civil resistance is difficult. It can take a tremendous amount of energy and tenacity, and it can be dangerous. The results may not be realized for years, if at all. University of Denver International Studies professor Erica Chenoweth says in today's environment, violent struggles get more attention, and it's easy to overlook the success of civil resistance. In fact, before she became one of the country's leading experts on nonviolent strategies, she was a skeptic. I shared a lot of the same skepticism and pessimism that people have about nonviolent resistance, thinking that it's something that, you know, people do when they want to make a moral point or do so more on principle than out of pragmatic uh, or sort of strategic decision making. 
Um, and I just was flat out wrong. I, I think that the historical record speaks for itself that during that 1900 to 2006 period around the world, even in highly authoritarian regimes or extremely oppressive systems, that nonviolent resistance was succeeding outright twice as often as its violent counterparts and achieving major goals short of full success about twice as often as well. So let's talk about some of the challenges we heard today and get your reaction. These movements, for one, have some trouble maintaining their finances. They sometimes lose members because of fear and intimidation, or worse, they're actually harmed by the opposition fired at or assaulted. What is your reaction to those three challenges? One of the ways to deal with that as a movement is to basically develop new and innovative techniques that keep people safe even when they do face a very repressive opponent. So these would be like shifting from demonstrations to stay-at-home demonstrations, which can be very powerful because they serve the same function as a strike when several million people engage in them. Do you think that we are in a unique or a new moment right now? I do. Um, I collect data on trends in nonviolent mobilization. Um, from I have a data set that covers the entire world from 1900 through the fourth quarter of 2015. And we actually live in the most contentious decade on record during that time, as measured by new onsets of mass mobilization campaigns that are targeting their central governments, either to remove um, the incumbent leader from power or to um, engage in territorial independence. Those are maximalist goals that are demanding uh, systemic change at the national level. And we are seeing more of those in this decade than we've ever seen during that entire 115 years preceding. And it's really interesting because it also corresponds with the decline in new onsets of armed insurrection. So since about the 1960s, armed insurgencies have been declining in frequency whereas nonviolent campaigns around the world have been increasing in frequency. So to some degree, we're really seeing people power substituting for kind of the traditional uh, method of revolutionary politics that is armed struggle. So violent insurrection is not inevitable? Uh, no, I, I think it's a choice. I, I think um, there's a, a well-known quote by Thucydides, who in his uh, writings on the history of the Peloponnesian War said, belief in the inevitability of war is itself a cause of war. And I think that too many people think of it as something that is an automatic response to a certain set of given conditions, and that it's not much related to the choices that people make. And uh, I think that's a mistake to think that way and that we can probably do better as a species. That was Erica Chenoweth from the University of Denver. She's also the author of Why Civil Resistance Works, The Strategic Logic of Nonviolent Conflict. You've been listening to Civil Resistance, The Power of the People on America Abroad. This Hour of America Abroad was written and edited by Rob Sachs and produced by Yael Evan-Orr with additional production help from Flan Williams and Margaret Evans. Audio engineering support was provided by Mario Saavedra at KCRW. Special thanks to Zimbabwe-based reporter Nyasha Mukapiko. You can hear past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, finding us on the America Abroad or Public Radio International apps, or by visiting our website at PRI.org, where you can also find extended interviews and exclusive content pertaining to this and other programs. I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. Support for the show was provided by Public Radio International stations and listeners like you. 
PRI Public Radio International.